what's up everybody welcome to the rambling rake podcast the first episode that i am actually recording out of my home studio here in south yonder up western australia where today i will be talking exclusively afl storylines in particular four storylines that catch my eye heading into the season that i want to follow quite closely and see how they track along the way i am recording this at monday night it is february the 24th meaning we are just a click over three weeks away from our season opener between Richmond and Carlton, the traditional season opener that usually is quite boring, but this season may be exciting. Who knows? So without further ado, the first of my storylines that I'm keen to follow this year, the Hawthorne hype train. Now, Hawthorne exited last year in really good fashion, but really frustrating fashion, I'm guessing, for fans. They beat West Coast here in Perth only for the Dogs to win their game the following day, I think it was, and kick them out of finals contention. So they've showed they could take it up with the best, and then they've missed out on finals the very next day. Super frustrating for them. But given that they finished so strongly and so well with a great performance against a top contender, there's understandably a ton of hype around Hawthorne returning to the finals this year, potentially being a top four team in a lot of uh, preseason hype uh, articles, predictions, whatever the hell you want to call them. Um, Hawthorne has massive raps on them at the moment. Huge raps on Hawthorne. So my question to you, my listeners, should I believe the hype? Is, is Hawthorne for real? I'm not exactly sure where to stand with this. They have a few deficiencies, a few question marks, and a few areas where you look at and you go, this should be a serious area of strength. So I guess let's start with the areas of strength. Let's dissect the Hawks a little bit here. The clear argument that everyone seems to be making for as to why Hawthorne is a good team is their midfield. They have a Brownlow medalist returning to them, Tom Mitchell. That's number one. That's the factor. He did not play last year, and they were by no means a disgraceful team. So putting him back in should mean that they're good, right? Uh, Jaeger O'Meara is settled now. He's going to be in his second year at the Hawks. He seems relatively healthy. In fact, much much more healthy than he has for some time. So he will settle in nicely. They're hoping for him, Mitchell, and then the growth of James Wolver, the Warpedo, to come along and sort of form this big three in the midfield with Ben McAvoy in the ruck. That, to me, sounds deadly. That sounds like I should believe the hype. But the thing I'm actually most excited about to watch in Hawthorne, how does John Patton go? Like, like what is John Patton? He's coming off huge knee worries for GWS, traded to Hawthorne for a pittance. And they have this habit, Hawthorne, we know all about their weird knack to just recycle players, get the most out of them. You've seen them do it time and time and time again and win flags with those outcasts from other clubs or injury-riddled players from other clubs and they're continuing to try and do it here. John Patton particularly strikes me as an interesting point to watch this season duo uh, teaming up with Mitchell Lewis. I was going to say duoing up there. Duoing up? What a terrible expression that would be. Anyways, teaming up with Mitchell Lewis. Uh, Plenty of athletic ability, plenty of marking ability. The goal-scoring power is sort of there. They're not going to be like the elite goal-kickers of the competition, but they have a a decent enough supporting cast to, to think that they'll be able to kick a score in that forward line. But it's that supporting cast that I just can't get past. There's just question marks lingering over them. I'm going to list off some players here. Now, bear with me, because these players, disclaimer, I think they're all really good players. But are they enough 
to merge into a top four side? Are they enough to push Hawthorne up? So Jarman Impey, Scrimshaw, Smith, and Henderson. Okay, so my so Henderson's the one that I have sort of written down here on my notes. Will he back up 2019? He's a question mark for me because last year was brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. He was probably arguably All-Australian wing talent. So for Henderson, this isn't a matter of, hey, is he good? It's, hey, is he still good? I know that sounds kind of stupid uh, and kind of ridiculous to ask, but I, I tend to think that if those guys, those four guys for me, if they can become really, really strong players, also particularly Jarman Impey, who showed flashes of being a really, really good Hawthorne Hawk last year, if they can carry on, then that's going to help this club's case tremendously. Uh, I think you know what you'll get out of that midfield. I think Warple, Mitchell, O'Meara is huge. So it's that supporting cast that can they push the Hawks out of the fringes? Can they do enough to push them into a higher form of footy that Hawthorne fans obviously crave? Second sort of thing around the supporting cast that I want to talk about, though, the, the player that sticks out as me as an absolute wild card is Chad Wingard. Like, what do we what do we think we're going to get from Chad Wingard? Is he sort of a guy that you point at and you go, well, we know who he is now. He's just X amount of goals per game, maybe, maybe a goal a game, maybe two goals, popping up for a really big day every now and then, uh, forward line player not really going into the midfield. Do we know exactly who Chad Wingard is or can he show us that we were in fact wrong we didn't know who he is and hey here's this blistering almighty season where he climbs back into the All-Australian form that he used to play in in Port Adelaide that is the key I mean I know I just listed off a bunch of players who I think can you know be that key core but if Chad Wingard can take his game to another level, it's going to take stress off John Patton. It's going to take stress off that midfield. It's going to take stress off guys like Jarman Impey to just play their game. So I, I tend to think Chad Wingard has a lot of stock here or, or holds a lot of sway as to where Hawthorne is going to end up sitting. So basically, to sort of recap this one off, they're a finals team in their own eyes. The Hawks are a finals team in their own eyes. But I just feel like this... <laughs> I have this lingering feeling about why this isn't a sure thing. This is something that's been created, spurred on by media and off-season talk. And when we get to the real nitty-gritty, we're going to realise that Tom Mitchell didn't move the needle, didn't move the needle for them as far as we thought he could, and sort of they, they stagnate a little. I have that feeling. I think I may be proven wrong. I did a ladder prediction the other day where they finished seventh. I'm going to say on the Six Pack Sports podcast, which you can check out on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. That struck me uh, as a sort of, I almost felt pressured to putting them in seventh. So yeah, to round that out, I'll be really excited, really interested to see where the Hawks finish up. Um, if can, can they go from that fringe eight team and push into that top four team? That's something that I'm going to be watching very closely. Now, moving on to a team that I hold dear to my heart, my Fremantle Dockers. This one is arguably, I mean, I'm going to say it's one of the most interesting storylines in the competition because I'm fucking putting it in my four storyline, uh, you know, show here. But it, my, my question here to Fremantle, can Justin Longmuir put them on the right path to getting that success and that culture that they need? This is going to be a really tricky one. 
Because, okay, so the thing with football, what you want is to explore the unknown, to uncover a gem. Isn't that what it's all about? Risking what you know versus what you don't know. You can play it safe and you can play Brenda Matera all you want and you can play Connor Blakely all you want and you know what you'll get and the kicking's not going to be great, but every now and then they'll pop up and do enough for a win and something good will happen between five bad things and we'll all hold our breath and go, hey, maybe this is the turning point. No more. That happened far too much under the Ross Lyon regime. It was, it was a matter of selection headaches and just baffling decisions at that selection panel that just kept us all wondering, what the hell were they thinking? I remember I, I went through some old tweets of mine over the weekend <laughs> I, I, because I'm you know such a narcissist. I just tracked through my old tweets. But I did find that I was raging towards the end of last year when Mitch Crowden, who was on the back of a 16-disposal, six-tackle effort, came out of the side to be replaced by a recovering Stephen Hill, who clearly wasn't ready. And the next week, I think Stephen Hill had 13 touches and one tackle. And it was those sorts of decisions where I was like, yes, he's Stephen Hill, but who cares? Like, was he ever going to give them six tackles of, of production? That kind of production? I No, that was never going to happen. That's the sort of decision-making that's got to be turned around at the selection panel. And I have faith right now that it will be turned around at the selection panel. I think what Longmuir is keen to do from the early signs in the preseason, which, I mean, it's always hard to tell what's going on at that point. But I think what he wants to do is just invest as heavily as he can in the youth, which is going to be interesting to see early on, particularly in the first, I don't know, let's say 10 rounds. Because in that 10-round sample size... If you're playing youth, you're likely to cop a few drubbings or, or take bad losses at certain stages. Freo fans are pretty fed up with that, so it's going to be interesting to see how they weather the storm and say, hey, hang with us. We need some time because we're working on a whole new thing and we're a whole new staff and we need to put this thing together and get it in motion. Kind of, kind of similar to what happened with Ross Lyon in 2012 where the first half was dismal. I remember going to a derby in 2012 where Freeman will kick something like four or five goals for the whole game. And it was appalling. It was just a terrible, terrible waste of time. My, my dad and I were just... Uh, well, I was horrified. He's an Eagles fan, so he was pretty happy, actually. But it's about how Longmuir can weather that storm and continue to push forward playing the youth and just stay the course. I think he will. I don't think he's going to be too phased by these sorts of things. I, I tend to think he's going to step into the unknown to uncover some gems. I mean, by all accounts, it sounds like the midfield's going to run as a Brayshaw, Chera... Fife midfield, that's going to be starting three. That was the design when those two guys were picked, Chera and Brayshaw, that is, with pick five and two, respectively, in their draft. That was always the picture that everyone had in their mind. This is going to be the starting midfield one day. Those two guys with Fife, Mundy's going to get old and he's going to sort of fade out and we really appreciate what he did. Looking to the future, it's going to be those two guys. Mixed with these other kids... Caleb Sarong, uh, recently coming into the news, throwing his hand up in selection for round one on the back of some stellar intra-club form. He's got to carry that over into the Marsh series. But, uh, you know, he's certainly someone who you've got to look at as a Frio fan and go, look, why why not? He's a first-year kid, but why not? Why not put him in the midfield? Like, I, I know if I put Connor Blakely in my midfield or I, I put one of those fringe guys, like maybe a Reese Conker who to be fair, is shifting down to a role in defence. I know if I put him in my midfield, I know what I'm going to get, and it's probably not exactly a winning formula against good good to great teams. So with that said, it's like, why not throw Caleb Sarong in there? Why not 
see what maybe Liam Henry can do once he's fit and firing. Uh, who Also, he hit the main training track today, which is really good news for the Dockers. Um, also, they'll play the likes of Sturt, Valenti, Frederick. They'll all see time at some point. So I'm going to be really interested to see how Fremantle weathers that initial storm of 10 rounds of maybe, you know, I don't know, they could it could, it could be bad and it could be eight losses after 10 rounds or it could be good and it could be six wins, four losses after 10 rounds. I don't really know how this is going to pan out because it's a whole new season and a whole new dynamic for the Dockers. So I guess we're just going to have to watch with bated breath and just see what happens to their their squad and how things pan out that way. That said, from a team that looks likely to occupy the bottom part of the ladder to teams that could likely occupy the higher parts of the ladder or will occupy the higher parts of the ladder... The next storyline I want to talk about, the next thing that I really want to follow, and this is something that intrigues me, I don't know, maybe more than it intrigues other people, you might find it boring, please don't turn the podcast off quite yet, Uh, but no more parody in the league, and when I say parody, I mean that even slate of not knowing who's going to win a premiership, not knowing... Uh, you know, who's going to perform in the finals? Is there going to be a team come from eighth or something like that? And you may disagree with me here and say that the league is still completely evened out, but I feel the last four years have been fantastic, right? Across the AFL. The last four years have been uh, the Bulldogs, the Tigers, the Eagles, and then the Tigers again winning the premiership. And you might say, well, the Tigers have won 50% of those flags. It's not even, but I didn't really expect them to win either. Last year, I know they stormed GWS in the grand final, but if you had asked me two months out, I actually was calling them to win the grand final, but I was not convinced about it. So there's no, there there was that element of surprise. By no means did I think the Eagles would flame out the way they did and miss a preliminary final. You know, by no means did I think GWS would rise through the finals the way they did battling all the injuries that they had and reach the grand final. You know, so there, there was always that element of surprise, whereas I feel now... Heading into this new season, I get the the hunch, I guess you could say it is, because I could be totally proven wrong on this, could look like an absolute dickhead, but I, I get the hunch that the Tigers and Eagles are just going to romp everyone. Everyone. I think the Tigers had a pretty tumultuous year last year and still managed to win the flag. I don't see them going away anywhere. I... I think they'll go back to dominating the regular season this year. That's sort of where I, I guess I'm positioned with that one. The Eagles are the ones that, you know, they were already lethal. Last year they kind of flamed out. It was a bit of a, you know, a weird ending to what promised to be a good year. There was just a lot of shit going on for them at the at the back half of the season, particularly with the Willy Rioli thing through the finals and you know, the circus that that brought about. And, and it couldn't have been easy for the players, I mean, like, like we can sit there and say, oh, the players aren't affected by this. That's their friend. That's their mate. That's a guy that's, like, really respected within their club going through that. I'm not here to say whether he's right or wrong. I'll let Asada or Wada or whoever takes care of that take care of that. But that's got to affect you on some level, particularly a guy who was bringing them as much success at center bounces as Willie Rioli was. So I feel like they've had time to regroup, and not only did they, you know... They won't have Willie Rioli this year either, but one person they will have is Tim Kelly. He's a top five Brownlow candidate from last year. Well, not candidate, but finished in the top five of the Brownlow race. So West Coast, is they're clearly going to push. I think between them and Richmond, they've, they've sort of gone back to this mould where... Remember Hawthorne's 3 Pete, And it was just always Hawthorne at the top of the ladder. 
There might have been Sydney or Frio or someone like that floating around the edges, but it was always Hawthorne. Like, they were dominant. They would win, you know, X amount of games every year. And they were just so strong. Before that, it was the Cats. Or, or that year that Collingwood went through in 2011, obviously lost to the Cats in the grand final, but dominated the regular season. I expect that same dominance from the Eagles and Tigers this year. Particularly the Eagles, when they get to play at home, they're going to crush teams. They should crush teams. So I expect this sort of parity in the league to sort of flip. I think those two will be the top two teams. I, I'm actually I'm going to be bold here, and I'm going to say I expect them to win 17 games each, uh, minimum, because they are just that well-constructed and that deep at almost every position, and also well-drilled, well-coached teams that I just don't think are going to be affected in any way, shape, or form by lesser teams. You know, there, there used to be, like, even to last year, where you're looking at GWS finishing in, in sixth place, uh, if my memory serves me correctly. I don't have that written down, but I think they finished in sixth place and you would look at them and say they could knock off the team on the top of the ladder. If Richmond or West Coast is sitting on the top of the ladder after something like round 13, they're not going anywhere. That, that, that's it. That, like, I don't think GWS in sixth place will beat them. You know, I think it would take a huge effort, a huge upset from maybe a Brisbane side at home or something like that to actually get past them. I, I just don't think that those two teams are going to be moved. There'll be teams like GWS, like Collingwood maybe, uh, who will get healthier this year and they had a nightmare run with injury last year. Both of those teams could end up sort of looking like the Fremantle and Sydney of that Hawthorne era. But I think Richmond and the Eagles are just two powerhouses destined to collide in the finals at some point, be that in the grand final or not. You never know how those things are going to work out. Who knows what happens down the stretch. But I just think... With those two teams at the peak of their powers, I, I just think the rest of the competition's toast. I don't know if anyone really stands a chance as long as they can stay healthy. So that will be one storyline I'll be following. Another, to round us out here, as I look to finish up uh, this four-storyline quick pod, uh, obviously guestless today. I'll be hoping to have a guest in next week. Uh, we will be organising something, and I will be working tirelessly to drag someone into my home in South Yonder up. But nonetheless, today, while you've got me solo, let's round out this four-part series, four-part episode, I guess it is. It's not really a series. Four-part episode of Storylines. This one's my favourite. This is my favourite storyline that I'm going to be following during the year. Who's the best interim coach that became a full-time coach? So the candidates are Brett Ratton from the Saints, David Teague from Carlton, Reece Shaw, North Melbourne. So if, you, if you're constituting them around who's going to be the best, it sort of comes up as in what constitutes a good year for these teams. That's what the question becomes. What constitutes success for each of these teams? Two of them, I think, are set in similar situations, and that's Carlton and North Melbourne. So I'll, I'll start with Carlton, with Teague. What does he have to do to be a success? Uh, well, finding some help for Patrick Cripps would be number one. Finding a way, obviously, you know, the roster is set in stone, so it's not a matter of finding a player or, you know, this isn't the NBA. You don't go and sign a free agent somewhere. But figuring out a way to get Patrick Cripps some help is pivotal. That'll come naturally with Sam Walsh's progression. 
I genuinely believe he is arguably the best player in the making. I think he's going to be absolutely fantastic. But yeah, I, I think a lot of it comes within that midfield dynamic, finding Cripps some help. But all in all, Carlton could notch eight wins, and so long as they're competitive and so long as they look good doing it, you would think that they're a success story. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong about that. Maybe Carlton fans don't view it that way. I actually don't know a ton of Carlton fans. Maybe they think that eight wins is not good enough. Maybe they think it's finals or bust year. To me, with Charlie Kernow injured for most of the year, you've got eight wins on your timeline. You pass that eight wins, you look like a competitive team doing it, then I will tip my cap to the Carlton Football Club if they can do that, particularly with the, the lack of depth they have in certain positions. They've got star power in that midfield with Walsh and Cripps, and then after that, it's like this drop-off that you know, might, might be exposed against a, a lot of teams that might have depth that can cover that and weather the Cripps storm. Who knows? Okay, so the second one was North. North remind me of the Memphis Grizzlies in the NBA. They really do. They just play this really hard, tough brand, and they float around the, the you know finals and... Sort of, they never really go away, but they're never really challenging. And there's a really weird dynamic to North. So, Reese Shaw has already come out and said it's finals or bust. That's the benchmark. I don't know about that. I don't. I don't really consider them a finals team. Again, in that, I'll circle back to my ladder prediction on the Six Pack Sports podcast where I had them at 17th. I'm beginning to regret that. That was kind of spur of the moment. I made that ladder a bit quick. It was. It was a rush job. I'll make an actual ladder later and, and go through it on this show here. But yeah, so North Melbourne, t- to me, probably around the eight-win mark again. If they can notch eight wins, and, and they didn't really make any moves in the off-season that, that are going to turn the needle for them too much. So I'd say eight wins. They, they might get 10. They might get 12. They might have a great year. Um, they might play finals. I, I'm not really sure what to think of North Melbourne. They might flame out. They might win four. Who knows? Uh I tend to think they're in sort of the same boat as Carlton. So that, for Reece Shaw, he can get a successful year with that eight wins, I feel. The one that probably can't settle for eight wins, and this just baffles me. This, this is what baffles me most about heading into this season, is the expectations on the St Kilda Football Club and Brett Ratton as head coach. Now, there's probably not a whole lot of pressure on Rats himself. I don't think there's a ton of people out there that are going to claim for his head, uh, you know, if they flame out this year and just have a, a terrible year. But I do think Brett Ratton and St Kilda as a whole are expected to make a lot of noise, right? I mean, that, there's been a lot of noise coming out of that camp already. For some reason, their fans... I mean, let's compare the, the three fan bases. Carlton's fans, I feel like, might be happy with eight wins. Who knows? Maybe I'm wrong on that again. North's fans, I think definitely eight wins would, would probably suffice for them. The Saints? The Saints think eight wins is okay because I get the feeling Saints fans want a lot more, whereas I almost think six wins is okay for the Saints. I don't have high expectations on this team. I'm not sold on the moves they made. I don't actually think getting Brad Hill turns the needle for them that much, and he was their key signing other than that. Uh, Dougal Howard, I do think, uh, you know, is, is good and something they definitely needed. But Brad Hill just... I, here's the thing about Brad Hill. Brad Hill was funneled the football at Fremantle. He was destined to look good in the game plan that Ross Lyon drew up because every single time a Fremantle player got the ball, they turned their heads and looked for Brad Hill. Now, that might work two ways. I mean, that, I mean, that could work one of two ways. It, he, could even, he could either get even better at St. Kilda given that 
he's not going to have the pressure of having to go and find the ball at all times and he may find himself playing a more free game. Or he will go off the radar because no one is looking for him and he may struggle to find his own football. That's what sort of sticks in my mind about that signing. So, I mean, that kind of sums up the same season. It could go one or two ways. You can either have gotten everything right and project into top eight contention or you can flame out. But I I just have a feeling that Saints fans, for some reason, for a club that's been starved of success outside of a few good years at the start of the Ross Lyon days for them, I don't know why their fans are all of a sudden clamoring for success because of the signing of Brad Hill. Is that fair of me? I'm not sure. I Maybe I'm being a little harsh. Maybe they showed enough last year to say that it's not all on Brad Hill. But I just think the expectations on the Saints are too high for Brett Ratton to be considered the best interim coach out of these three. Well, best full-time, interim-turned-full-time coach. So that leaves me thinking that it's between Teague and Shaw, and I'm going to give the nod to Teague uh, as my prediction to be the best of the three, or the most successful as the three. Uh, And that's got nothing to do with Teague. That's just because he has Patrick Cripps and Sam Walsh in his midfield. And at the end of the day, star power counts. It's not everything in this game. It's not, again, to circle back to the NBA references, it's not the NBA where two guys just lift you to a championship. It's not going to be that way. But again, I'm going to just side with Patrick Cripps because, you know what? When you're in doubt, just go with Patrick Cripps. It seems to be a pretty good flavor for Carlton. So... I guess that's it. I guess that's my four storylines for the AFL coming up this year. Like I said, there'll be some shows coming up in the in the coming weeks. We'll be hoping to have some guests on board uh, from around town here where I live in Mandra in Western Australia. So hopefully we'll have some, some people out in the community that are doing some pretty cool things that can come on and talk. It won't always be about sport. We will have some pop culture, maybe some entertainment, music sort of things thrown in. Uh, I do actually really want to do a podcast where I just dissect my favorite Simpsons episodes. So maybe that'll be coming up in the future. Who knows? But thanks so much for joining me on this one. You'll be able to find the Rambling Rake podcast on SoundCloud for now. I am going to get it on Apple and Spotify soon, but not yet. So bear with me. When I get a new episode up, I'm sure it'll go to Spotify and Apple. If you could go and find me on the socials, I'm on Twitter, you know, Facebook, check out Six Pack Sports as well. There is some really cool things there. So, yeah, that's uh, that's me for now. So I'm going to sign off. I'm going to leave you guys with that, and I'll be back to talk some more AFL next week. Thanks.